Love is the Law by the Suburbs. Before that, we heard Silly Girl by the Descendants. And before that, Grand Vokes with Clacticana. Coming up next, uh, I'm going to stay on the same theme. And it's a thread, a very helpful thread I read recently on Twitter from Alec Caracatesanis. Really? This is what happens when uh, one doesn't uh, edit their shows. You get to hear me try out names and uh, sometimes mispronounce them. Alec Karakatsanis. Oh, I didn't think it was going to be that rough. My apologies. Anyway, um, really informative uh, person to follow on Twitter. You can follow Alec at, at Equality Alec. Updated thread. You're going to hear a lot about how cops need more resources because crime is surging, and that's in quotation marks, in the next few months. It's propaganda, and here's how you can respond. So this is super helpful because uh, I find it's just, uh, there's so much misinformation out there, and it's really helpful to have, if you're able to to respond to the, the lies, um, it's helpful to have ways to do so. And this t- thread came out on August 4th of this year, and I'll also share uh, a link to this on our page. First, what constitutes a crime is determined by people in power who have a lot of money. And let's see, and there's, then there's a link to another thread. And the first part of that is a few thoughts about crime. Uh, the concept of crime is created and manipulated by people who have power. Throughout U.S. history, powerful people have defined crime in ways that benefit wealthy people and white people. The next uh, second, the cops manipulate crime stats for political reasons. Cops don't even count the violent and sexual crimes that cops commit which would entirely reverse the crime stats in every city and state. If all the crimes committed by police and jail-slash-prison guards was counted, it would completely change police crime stats that these experts, and experts in quotation marks, uh, regurgitate in the media to support police propaganda. Third, police ignore most quote-unquote crime. They only look for some crime committed by some people in some places. A school fight in a poor neighborhood is recorded as a crime, 
but a fight in a wealthy private school is not. And then there's the post, uh, read hundreds of examples here. And let's click on this link here. This is one of those threads that there's so many different links and there's so many uh, paths to go down. And this links to an article from the Yale Law Journal, The Punishment Bureaucracy, How to Think About Criminal Justice Reform. And this was written in March of 2019. And uh, it looks like a lot of, uh, many of many quotes and it's a very long article here, but I recommend checking that out. And that's also linked in our thread here. Fourth, police have incentives to focus on some crimes. And again, crimes is in quotation marks and not others. They make billions of dollars in overtime for low level arrests. This is one reason cops have ignored hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits while making record, record drug arrests for decades. And then there's a link to uh, an article by Corey Rayburn Young, uh, How to Lie with Rape Statistics, from the Iowa Law Review. Fifth, police corruption in search of extra cash and weapons affects all of what cops do and what they tell us about what they do. For example, police take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. I want to, I, in my alternate, in an alternate universe, um, I've got nothing against wheat pasting. I feel like I, I just should get my shit together and do it and or get some folks together to do it. But I feel like so many of these great pieces of information would be great just to like put them around the city on walls just so like folks can like see them and just see the truth of what's out there as opposed to like the lies that are just oftentimes printed in the paper and, and discussed everywhere. But yeah, that's... I think that's a really important one to uh, comment on. And if you get sucked into any of those Twitter threads about having to how police are helpful, you can say how they actually cause uh, more more theft than anyone else. They take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. Yeah. Ugh. Sixth, only four percent of all cop time goes to what they call "quote unquote" violent crime. And cops are terrible at solving quote-unquote violent crime. Overwhelming evidence establishes that cops in prisons actually increase future crime. So cops are terrible at preventing harm. And then they provide a link of how do police actually spend their time. In the New York Times. Seventh, what cops call quote-unquote crime is different from what causes harm. For example, tobacco kills 40, 480,000 people every year in the U.S., including 41,000 from secondhand smoke. These preventable deaths dwarf police-related data on deaths from the drugs cops call crime. Eighth. Eighth. The same is true of water and air pollution for fraudulent and fraudulent home foreclosures, all of which cause huge death rates that kill far more people than what cops call homicides. Ninth. Wage theft. That's a big one. Wage theft by employers isn't in crime stats because it's almost never investigated by cops but it costs low-wage workers an estimated $50 billion a year, dwarfing the cost of all cop-reported robberies, burglaries, larcenies, and car thefts combined. Tenth, did you know that rich banks make about as much in fraudulent overdraft fees as all of what police call property crime combined in the U.S.? Did you know that none of this makes it into police property crime statistics? And then there's a link from prospect.org. Big banks charge million, billions, excuse me, billions in overdraft fees. Let me finish. Let me click on this so I can finish reading the headline. 
Big banks charged billions in overdraft fees during the worst months of the pandemic. That was from April of 2021 by Alexander Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N, from uh, American, the American Prospect. Oof. Next, 11th. There are millions of yearly white-collar crimes by big corporations and the wealthy people who own them, but police don't put them in their crime stats. Read more here about why cops distort the concepts of crime and actual harm. And then there's a link to an article from currentaffairs.org. Excuse me. And the title is Why Crime Isn't the Question and Police Aren't the Answer. I may have to read that on the air later. Next. Twelfth. Police will say, but even if crime is politicized, and even if violent crime is actually down in 2021, shootings are up. Well, gun sales are up 40%, and we're in a global pandemic mental health crisis. Murder is a problem, but not one related to more cops. Thirteenth, the initial 2021 trend of more shootings is especially accelerated in places that increase police funding, and almost no city decreased police funding significantly. See a few examples. And then I have another thread here. Fourteenth. Almost all reporting about a crime surge uses low base rates so that percentage changes can appear high. An increase of 10 shootings to 12 shootings is reported as a 20% increase. Fifteenth, media often focuses on month-to-month or year-to-year numbers, emphasizing different crimes at different times if one goes up, obscuring larger trends like this. We have among the lowest murders in the last 50 years and other countries have, with fewer cops have way fewer murders. Sixteenth, cops slash media thus cherry-pick data. The result of this manipulation is one of the big scandals of our time. One of the big scandals of our time. For decades, the public has hugely overestimated crime rates. And then there's a link to this article. Um, many Americans are convinced crime is rising in the U.S. They're wrong. But their fear, their fear makes everyone less safe. And that's from 538, and it was written by Maggie Korth. That's K-O-E-R-T-H. Next, 17th. There is no evidence that cops in prison reduce any crime, especially that they reduce crime, quote-unquote, relative to other alternatives. Think about what could have been done to help people without the trillions of dollars spent on the war on drugs. And then there's a thread about the war on drugs. <sighs> I'd read that, but I'd probably get too angry. As opposed to now, when I'm just kind of medium angry. 18th. People telling you to give more cash to cops because of crime don't count the costs, millions of arrests, millions of separated kids, millions of lost jobs, homes, medical appointments, tens of millions of police assaults, hundreds of millions of criminal records. 19th. Those calling for more cash for cops don't tell you that the trillions of dollars spent on police prisons has been used by cops for total surveillance and to infiltrate and crush every single movement for social justice in the past 100 years. And that totally just corresponds to the last article we read. 20th. The, the idea of soaring crime after a few dozen more shootings without reporting, how many people died from unstable housing, lack of access to health care, pollution, or malnutrition is how elites keep us focused on solutions of control and profit and not liberation. Finally, not all human tragedy is preventable, but quite a lot of it is, oh, I feel that, and accepting propaganda on crime and police data about that concept as a proxy for holistic public safety is the original sin 
of most writing in this topic. Uh, read more uh, at uh, the the Twitter handle is in, interrupt c r i m interrupt crim uh, and fight back against propaganda that wealthy interests and cop unions are feeding us. And then oh, um, this person just did the citations podcast and um, ooh, we may have to. Uh, play that let's just do that then i did have some articles lined up and i'm also talking a lot and it's super important to get other people's voices on here so let's play this this is episode 142 the summer of anti black lives matter backlash and how let's see what the full title is and how the concept of crime were shaped by the property class This is a bit long, so let's start playing it and see. What we get here. Hmm. For instance, in the New York Times, May 11th, 2021, quote, shootings and subway attacks put crime at center of NYC mayor's race. Two weeks later, the New York Times was back, May 2021, with this, quote, a year after George Floyd, pressure to add police. And then just a couple days later, May 25th, 2021, CNN had this, quote, defund the police in resistance as violent crime. The next month, June 24th, 2021, you had Reuters with defying defund police calls, Democrat Eric Adams. On July 10th, the Washington Post ran an opinion piece by Professor Raymond J. Laraja with the headline, the New York mayoral primary is a reminder. Voters are. In it, it talks about the quote unquote coalition that. Democratic primary frontrunner for the royalty, Eric Adams, had assembled, which it called reminiscent of, quote, old Peterborough alliance. Article kind of makes the faux populist that so-called real and, quote, unquote, less educated really want tough on crime, unlike, of course, hippy-dippy progressive left. And the article says this about Democratic Adams says Adams quote reminded us that less make up most of the party different priorities than the notably on a major issue a pre-election poll of likely showed that fear of crime weighed much more heavily on the mind of less yeah and so you have this narrative that's similar Not only was so that shows fun movement, bail reform. This is that this is sort of a backlash. Eric Adams came out. Now there's one major problem with 
There is zero evidence any correlation between February 20 article by Igor Darish details why the argument against the defense quote few cities have cut their police Minneapolis City had to abolish the police protest but ultimately cut just eight million dollars from the budget while leaving the same number of cops on despite nonstop fear mongering from near unions after Mayor De Blasio was outed with one billion dollar police cut who was largely criticized back by PD agency. Only a dozen of the roughly 18,000 many of the cities that did cut police budgets blamed revenue shortfalls caused by coronavirus pandemic rather than demand. Demonstrators. So when you compare the modest, and I mean very modest, like less than 1% budget cut, certain police departments were closed back. Increased police. There is zero correlation. There is zero correlation between whether or not the mayor Democrats. So obviously, the idea that Criticism of defund or anti-defund or anti-defund backlash is a result of somehow fund winning <laughs> right. or meaningfully reducing prisons. Is Remember total... how there was no police anymore, Adam, after last summer and now crime went up? Like... Yeah, it's a total fiction. And indeed, the departments that increased the budget, which was most of them, by the way, increased the total number of police. Those, of course, saw an increase in murder as well. Mm-hmm. So there is absolutely no connection between those two things at all. The only connection they can really make with this nebulous demoralizing that the protesters like gave them a sad and they decided not to like pursue criminals. Quit. Yeah, <laughs> right, they sort of sat exactly. in their car and ate donuts <laughs> instead of because they can't show any connection. So they had to come up with this very this kind of mystical woo woo ish explanation. They canceled the TV show cops, so now actual cops have been. Yeah, and so this is very sort of typical of the argument. And so what you had is you had a very brief moment like where really fundamentally reconsidered what public safety, what healthy communities look like, what crime prevention rather than throwing police at crime, what that would look like. You had a bit of a broke of the kind of ideological off on crime more power. Prosecutor's logic for like five minutes for Nike, CNN, everyone sort of Time Warner, Mm -hmm. NBA, everyone suddenly decided they cared about racism. About what? And then it was sort of, okay, let's just kind of all this to charity programs, education funding. Of course, there's nothing to do with black people. Making sure that Black Lives Matter is displayed across uh, For some fucking bizarre reason, I guess we wanted to make sure the aliens could see this this slogan. Once the mural quotient was hit, they went back to... Right, and then everyone, including de Blasio, just gave 1,200 more police. IPD and everyone sort of moved on. And we said, oh, no, no, we can have reform, but we're not going to actually do anything. Bias training. We're going to sort of gesture towards reform. As Eric Adams, to his credit, did, because Eric Adams still was similar to Trump's in that he sort of would say contradictory things all the time. So, but there's a reason why he got the New York Post endorsement, because basically signaled that he had the power he wanted to do. And so now you have this murder rate going up. Democrats need someone to blame. You can't really blame high murder rates and Democrats Republicans, so they're going after this it's sort of going too far, gone too far. Eric Adams shows it. Never mind that Philadelphia re-elected Professor Prosecutor Krasner, and never mind that Buffalo elected mayor. Forget all that. This was one election proves that the Democrats that the black voters they love cops all of a sudden. And of course again, depends how you phrase the poll, but sometimes that's true. And there are lots of African Americans in the city. 
do like cops, who do want cops, again, for the reason options, social conditions, into, the narrative cemented itself. There was an uptick in murder, need to defund, need the Black Lives Matter, substance. That was all dead in the water, over, gone too far. Classic example of like, they never had any power. I mean, this is just like, they did this with like a lot of Bernie stuff. Like Bernie would campaign on Medicare for all. And then like he would lose and then they, or they would lose the primary and they'd say, this is evidence that that doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> that never was policy. That never won anything. It was like, these, it was purely theoretical. The fund was purely theoretical. They never won an election. They never had any power. Socialism failed because we sanctioned to death every moderately socialist country in the global south. Proof that it does not work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they're never given a chance to work. They're never given a chance to work. Alternative. All these nascent defund movements were stuffed out in their infancy. Clever accounting. Not really any substantive reconsidering public safety. There's some measures. There's some people. The most part, we're exactly where we want, and there's zero correlation between any meaningful scale. Because they're also going after bail. That murder rates are up in cities without any bail reform, which is the vast majority of cities. I cannot stress this enough. But they need to go after these modest reforms because they need to scapegoat them not only for their own failures, justify why they're exiting. They need to nip it in the bud, as Joe. They need to nip any kind of reform movement. An opportunity to dog here, ally in the White House. Posting on the line for the triple C, Florida in 2020. We're the tough on crime. We're not pro defund. Oh, they blamed, by the way, congressional law. No correlation there. It's a narrative. It has to be true. It doesn't matter what the fucking data says. This has to be the narrative moving forward. We want to talk to our guests about why that's not the case and why these movements are still worth defending, even though it's become unpopular to do. We will now be joined by Alec Karakatsana, founder and executive director of Civil Rights. Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender for years in the District of Columbia and the state of Alabama and co-founded the organization Equal Justice Under Law. He's the author of the book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. And you can follow him on Twitter at EqualityAlec. He'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. Okay, I meant to start that a little bit later, but uh, we'll continue listening because I do feel like this is more informative. So again, we're listening to Citations Needed Podcast, episode 142. And this came out on August 4th. And again, we'll post all of our links over on the website at weeklyrev.org. Or you want to talk about how it's sort of done? How we sort of generally understand. Data and reporting. 
not to collect all. ISIS motherboard just published an article on July 26th. Otter technology used by police allegedly hear gunshots. Talk about our specifically in the crime surge. Great place to start. I mean, the very notion of what constitutes a quote unquote crime is determined by powerful people, people who have power in societies across the world and throughout our own history here in this country have always changed the definition of what is criminal to suit their own interests. A classic example is it didn't used to be criminal to possess marijuana. The marijuana plant was not criminalized until it became useful for very powerful people to give police more discretion to arrest people. And that was associated with a desire by powerful people to give police more tools to track down, cage, arrest, and potentially deport Mexican-American immigrants. The same is true with opium. Powerful people decided to give this police the discretion to arrest people for possessing the opium substance to give them more power over Chinese-American immigrants. The same is true with cocaine and black Americans. Powerful people decided to make that criminal. It didn't used to be criminal. It was decided to be made criminal precisely so they could give police more discretion to surveil and track and arrest and cage and then profit off the labor of black Americans after the Civil War. The same concept is true across the concept of crime. So for example, wagering in the streets over dice is a crime. Who wagers in the streets over dice? Mostly poor people. But wagering over international currencies or the global supply of wheat, not a crime. In fact, people who wager on those things make billions of dollars and have their names on the wings of hospitals and museums. Or housing discrimination, it's not seen as a crime. Or sexual harassment at work, these are things that cause a lot of harm, but that our society has chosen to deal with in a civil context and not a criminal context. Another example might be campaign contributions. Some countries, and, and indeed different times in this country's history, you might consider the current political funding system as bribery, the crime of bribery. We have legalized it in this country. Invading foreign countries, drone strikes, refusing to offer medicine to people or insulin to people who need it, those could all be considered crimes. And at different times and places in our country's history, different things have been crimes, like refusing to give someone an abortion or giving someone an abortion or refusing to join a union or joining a union. I guess the first point I want to make is that so much of what we think of as criminal is actually just political choices made by people in power. I think a second topic we should talk about, though, is that of the things that are criminalized, the police only search for those crimes in some places mm -hmm. some of the time. And the, the way they make decisions over where to look for those crimes is actually even more important. So, for example, wage theft is a crime. Wage theft costs about $50 to $100 billion a year. But who commits wage theft? It's wealthy, large employers, corporations. It's almost never enforced by any police department or prosecutor's office in the country, even though, by conservative estimates, it costs as much money and damage by about a factor of five as all robbery, burglary, larceny, shoplifting, all property crimes combined. And then tax evasion costs about a trillion dollars a year. This is a crime that's committed by wealthy people. It's 20 times the damage of wage theft and about 100 times the damage of all other property crime combined, almost never enforced. Mm. Sexual assault laws are almost never enforced. While police gorge themselves on drug arrests, etc., 
constantly all over the country, they left hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested. I could go on and on. Fights in private schools, environmental pollution. There are several million environmental crimes committed every single year by companies and wealthy people in this country. They're never enforced. So I think we have to understand that background context before we have a conversation about crime. All that's true. I think some listening may say, okay, prove your point, citations. We've been talking about crime as a social construct for part of an hour now. You've proved your point. You're all a bunch of pie-in-the-sky, sort of far-left types. But murder is rather binary. You're either dead or alive. For the most part, and that murder is not something that murder across cultures has typically been found in the Ten Commandments, Hammurabi's Code, whatever, sort of a thing that is universally seen as bad, and that murder is up and murders up a lot, and that this spike of some say twenty five percent, you can debate that, that this is fueling a, or rather, it's I think it's fair to say it is, it is the fuel of a pre existing narrative that's been around for years, but now there's a sort of statistical mm -hmm. reference point they can cling to to push back against George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, fund movement, abolish movement within the Democratic Party. I mean, we've been speaking, it's pretty much the, the premise of this episode. Now, people getting shot in Chicago or Parkland, Florida, that is not a social construct. That is an objective reality. I want to sort of talk about this new liberal hand-wringing about blaming the rise in murders, not on a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, which seems like if you looked at the X factor here, that would be. But for the most part, New York Times, Vox, CNN, they're blaming it on modest bear reforms, despite as we talk about at the beginning. But I want to talk about murder and the rise of murder and what people are blaming that rise on, how we've immediately skipped past the messiness of debating how we can deal with that to just asserting that police are better. That your, your arch nemesis, Matt Iglesias, says police are better. German Lopez, police are better. Eric Levitz, police are better. I want, to, I want to talk about that assumption and the current reactionary pushback fueled by murder to the Black Lives Matter. Well, I have, first have to dispute that he's my arch nemesis. I feel like that, that <laughs> the word nemesis conveys that he's coming at me with some kind of um, actual substance and that I'm having trouble <laughs> that, overcoming. That he's an actual threat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a nonsense thinker, and so much of what he does is just so pathetic. I would hope he wouldn't be a nemesis. Wow. Not even worth your time. This is like the Raul Julia speech from Street Fighter. He's not even, he's, it was to you, it was a Tuesday, but go ahead. He, he's very much worth our time, though, but I don't want to be too flippant. I mean, sure, sure, he sure. communicates to millions of people every single day. And, he's and supposedly shapes the Biden administration's agenda, according to Politico, but go ahead, yes. Exactly. He's, he's out there spewing just total fabrications and nonsense, and a lot of people listen to him because he is really skirting the line between conventional wisdom and police propaganda very effectively. But I think this is this question about murder is so important. First, let me just say, we have a, a violent society. We have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of violence in our society every single day, not just murder, but our society is full of people harming each other. It's full of structural violence that leads to extraordinary and preventable death every single day. And the reason I do this work and the reason I care about this topic we're talking about right now I think our society's response to this harm is fundamentally flawed in exactly the way you suggest with your question. So let me just first say, if policing made us safer, and if policing prevented murder, we'd be the safest country in the world. No society in modern recorded world history has ever spent so much money on policing and cages and prosecutors and judges, right, and courts. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't prevent murder. In fact, there is not a single shred of evidence that increased expenditures on police prevent murder. 
The other thing that I, I want to suggest is that we should care about violence and death much more broadly than the narrow definition of murder that police are concerned with. First of all, police don't, when they're doing the murder stats, they don't count deaths in prison. They don't count deaths by police. They don't include those in the murder rates. And they also don't include all of the people that die from lack of health care, from environmental pollution, from home foreclosures. So when a bank fraudulently forecloses on a home or a landlord illegally kicks people out, we know that that actually is associated with huge increases in death. Deaths that actually dwarf the murder statistics that police rely on. And if we have a little bit of an expanded definition of preventable death, rather than the sort of very constrained definition of homicide that police departments report, I think we'd actually start to see a really different discussion about what are some of the solutions to that problem. But make no mistake, there has been increase this year in the number of police reported homicides. And I think it's important that we on the left actually talk about this issue and talk about why things like poverty and mental health care and gun sales and alienation in general from the things that connect us to other human beings and lack of access to art and music and theater and poetry and sort of ways of, of youth connecting to each other. These are the things that the evidence shows are actually connected to violence. And they're precisely not the things that our society is actually spending billions and billions of dollars on in every single city around the country when we talk about the way that police spend their time. Keep in mind, police only spend 4% of all of their time on what they themselves call violent crime. It's even less on murder. Right. Police have almost nothing to do with that issue. When Eric Levitz and Matt Iglesias say the criminology or the sociology is settled, because they don't just say it's like a contested thing. Eric Levitz literally says like, not a contestable point that more police reduces crime by extension i think they infer murder what are they citing what is that study and why is it bullshit because this is like now kind of taken for granted in a lot of circles and i really want to kind of explain why it shouldn't be i debunked this stuff last year in my piece in current affairs called why crime isn't the question and police aren't the answer but there are just a few basic points i mean okay. number one they're using terrible data Number two, the studies are actually quite weak and don't actually support the assertions that Levitz and Iglesias make about them. Number three, and this is probably most important, none of the studies that they cite, which are, are all flawed and weak, even sort of methodologically, none of them actually measure whether, so most of the studies are actually like very short-term studies about flooding a particular area with police and then looking at what the very short-term effect of crime was, right? right. So what they don't measure actually is hey, when you flood a neighborhood police and arrest people and cage them and send them to prison and, and then separate them from their children, their children grow up without a parent, what are the long-term criminogenic effects on crime? So they don't even look at that. Whereas some of the other broader literature actually tracks whether incarceration leads to more crime in the future and concludes that it does. But these short-term place-based studies don't even compare police to other alternatives. So these it would be totally consistent with these studies to flood a neighborhood with poets or artists or priests. They don't question whether the people flooding these neighborhoods need to have guns and need to be police officers, right? It could right. be after school programs, et cetera. And when you look at the other literature on the effectiveness of anti-poverty programs, community-based violence interruption, poetry, theater, music, art, athletic programs for kids, these all have like extremely high effectiveness rates, even on a long-term basis. So there's nothing particularly about the police in any of these studies. And then I think the most disingenuous and kind of fraudulent thing that they do is they use these points to argue for larger police budgets and to argue against reducing the size and power of police. Mm -hmm. They actually use this to argue against replacing police with mental health first responders and things like that. But in fact, 
because only 4% of police time is spent on violent crime, 96% of the time is not, you could actually reduce police budgets by 90% and still double the time and attention police give to these very particular strategies that Iglesias and Levitz and others rely on, mm -hmm. the so-called hot spot policing or emergency responder policing stuff that they contend from these studies actually reduces crime. So what's fascinating is that even the studies that they rely on are entirely consistent with massively defunding the extremely large and wasteful and kind of fraudulent police bureaucracy. We could double the amount of police time and attention spent on the tactics that they think score well in their studies and still reduce police by 90%. So in this summer of fear that I think we're seeing, you know, definitely a reactionary pushback to last year's uprisings, other related defund and abolitionist movements, the narrative is going to win, right? Like we can cite all the data we want, but there is a perception. And that perception helped along, of course, by the media's obsession with when it bleeds, it leads, is doing all of this kind of narrative work. And so this pushback, this backlash really against movements for justice, movements for less policing, movements for alternatives, movements for funding education and employment and the arts, things like that. That is really, I think, the media narrative, also the political narrative largely of the summer of 2021. What do you think, Alec, is a good way to kind of combat that? Yes, of course, we can point to data. We can say, okay, <laughs> police actually don't do shit about the stuff that you think you're scared of that probably isn't even out your front door, but, you know, down the cul-de-sac and then across town and then across the highway, et cetera, et cetera. But like that perception is definitely leading what we're hearing in this pushback. What would you say to kind of help along a more positive, less reactionary weaponized narrative? That's such a difficult question. I mean, I think there is a couple of components. There's a reason that people like Iglesias and Matt Taibbi more recently and Greenwald and Lee Fong and Eric Levitz and all these Substack writers, they never talk about the costs of policing. And I think what we saw last summer was an organic uprising or sort of mass set of thousands of uprisings all over the country because people saw very viscerally right in front of their faces in a way they couldn't ignore the incredible, extraordinary costs of the way that this country polices. And so there's a reason that those writers don't talk about the cost of policing, like surveillance, beatings, stabbings, family separation, sexual assaults, and domestic violence by police officers, which, by the way, the police don't even keep track of. And if they kept track of sexual assaults by police, it would totally change the crime rates in every major American city. That's how prevalent physical and sexual assaults are by police. Police don't even report those in when they give crime statistics. So these would entirely reverse the trends. And I think we have to do a better job of getting people to understand the extraordinary costs of policing. Another of the big costs, perhaps the biggest in my mind, is that the more you fund police and give them surveillance technology and weaponry, you enable police to do what they have done for the last 140 years, which is to crush every movement for social and racial and gender justice that has ever occurred in this country. Every struggle for labor rights, every struggle for immigrant rights, every struggle for working class people and people who sort of want to make a better life that in a more equal society, mm -hmm. it's been the police that has infiltrated and brutally suppressed those movements. That is what police do. That is actually their primary function for the ruling class. 
And when you fund them more, you make it harder and harder to achieve all of the progressive social changes that even people like Taibi and Iglesias and Fong claim that they want. What they don't understand is that the police have always been the tool that the ruling class uses to crush organizing by tenants, by workers, by women, for many, many years by people who are struggling in various formations in the queer movements. These are people who understand very, very deeply what the police are. And if we can change that narrative and get more and more people to understand, that's why I thought, for example, the, the videos last year of the NYPD crushing brutally the union picket line of the fruit and vegetable workers in New York City, asking for $1 a day extra during a pandemic to make sure people in New York had the fruit and vegetables they needed for their families to stay healthy. And NYPD crushed that revolt. Mm -hmm. And if you look back throughout history, in every decade of the 20th century, the police have brutally crushed labor organizing. So I think that one really important narrative for us to push back on is to give people a more clear understanding of what the police do. Let's look at how they spend their time. How much of their time is spent arresting people for being homeless, for low-level crimes like disorderly conduct or disobeying an order. One of the most common police arrests in this country is arresting people for driving on a suspended license when there are 11 million people who don't have licenses just because they're poor, because they can't pay fees and fines, not because they're bad drivers. That's actually the leading arrest in many jurisdictions in this country. So I think we need to give people a better sense of, of what police do. You bring up an excellent point, which is, forgive me, Lord, I cannot remember who said it on Twitter, and I always feel bad not accrediting, but someone said something to the effect of like, Occupy showed that Black Lives Matter has to precede Occupy in some ways because of the disruption, the clubbings, the beating, clearing out of Zuccotti Park, etc. And I thought that was sort of a good point. And one of the one piece of friction I, I think most urgently on that, not to steer from media criticism into like political theory, is that I don't see, if you play the tape to the end, I don't see any scenario where we have meaningful or urgent climate change or climate justice or climate justice mitigation, which is or evenly apply the, the harmful effects of climate change. I don't see any scenario where that takes place without mass civil unrest by normal people. And I don't see any way in which that civil unrest can be meaningful when you have a well-funded, highly surveilled, RoboCop-type police force. And that speaks to your point. And that is a, such an essential point, because like, there's basically no meaningful social, urgent social issue that is not snuffed out by... Mm -hmm police from the IWW to present day climate change to what have you, right? So in many ways, it's kind of the hub of all these movements like you talked about. But what I wanted to ask you is this idea of crime existing on a ledger and that when we talk about, which we discussed at the top of the show, when you talk about crime, quote unquote, crime is this isolated thing that happens on the street. Forget all the wage theft and environmental destruction, all the other examples you bring up, even, even setting that aside, even if you sort of accept a very limited Matt Iglesias definition of crime, there's still this other side of the ledger of harm that's done with mass incarceration that no one ever fucking talks about. And this was one of the hardest things I did at the appeal when I had a podcast is like, we're talking about the kind of Willie Horton moral hazard of crime coverage. Is that like, with the one exception of maybe when they see us, I can't think of very, any pop culture depiction of the harm that that causes, the actual dehumanization, the violence of prison, the sexual assault, the beating, the years lost, the money lost, the fathers who are lost, the daughters who are lost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is absolutely zero pop understanding of what those stakes are. And we talk about over-policing and sending away the bad guys as if it exists in some vacuum, as if it's just this kind of anodyne thing. I want you to talk about that other side of the ledger that never, ever, ever 
ever gets talked about, right? If, if the local news let off every night with a story profiling a family that was broken up by someone in county, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of people in county jail pre-trial, whether or not they, didn't, they missed their son's first softball game or they didn't pay rent and their family was evicted, whatever it is, they lost their job, they dropped out of school, we would have a totally different concept of what is crime. So I want you to talk about that side of the ledger and how it's completely erased. And that is a very loaded question, but go ahead. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I want to just stop for a second and remember a few years ago when Trump was, was you know, separating families at the border, much of liberal America was outraged. They adopted this phrase, kids in cages. Some people were outraged, protesting all over the place. And one thing that a lot of people didn't really fully appreciate at the time is that there are 3,163 local jails in this country where we separate children from their parents every single day. And the vast majority of people in those jails are separated from their children only because their parents can't pay a cash bail. That is how our legal system, police, prosecutors, judges, that is how our police sort of bureaucracy decides who should be with their children at home and who should be stuck in a cage of squalor and filth with no sunlight and exercise and fresh air and infectious disease and sexual assault. And so take something like the war on drugs. If you look at the costs of the war on drugs, not only has it been trillions of dollars over the last 40 years, but it caused over 50 million people to be caged, about 20 million people from marijuana possession alone, tens of millions of children separated from their parents, hundreds of millions of police stopping and searching and probing people's bodies, including millions of times that police probed people's anuses and genitals for drugs. Not only did we cost tens of millions of people their education, their homes, and their ability to make a living, we also caused tens of millions of square acres of pristine land throughout Latin America to be spray poisoned. We surveilled the communications of billions of people around the globe. We basically eradicated the privacy in the Fourth Amendment. I could keep going on, right? There's many, many consequences, but maybe the most profound one is that we sentenced human beings to hundreds of millions of years in cages. And at the end of the day, after all of that, 40 years into the war on drugs, drug usage rates are higher in much of the country. Drug deaths are way higher than they used to be. Children are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. And all of this, mind you, while we legalize tobacco, which kills 450,000 human beings every single year, and alcohol, right? So there's, there's very particular political choices being made. But, but we engage in this war on drugs with all of those costs. And for all of the policing and prosecution and human caging, we actually made things worse. And we fundamentally need to get people to understand that police and cages and coercion and child and family separation are never going to make us safer as a society. Ever. You know, something we've seen lately in a number of different contexts, but I think the most recent one that I remember is a very, very localized poll that was conducted in Detroit was being touted as evidence to back the statement that communities suffering violence want more policing. They love cops and they want more cops. This has been making the rounds, this idea that sure, sure. Last year, there was the whole George Floyd protests and defund and yada, yada, yada. But now that we see the stats rise on quote-unquote crime, and it's reported on local news, it's on people's social media feeds, police are screaming about it, politicians are screaming about it, that actually when it comes down to it, that's just like a hippy-dippy fantasy. And, and really, the working class people who suffer 
from poverty and the violence caused by poverty actually aren't seeking alternatives. They just want more cops. What would you say to that? It's total nonsense. These polls that are supposedly relied on for this proposition are obviously, like all political polling by wealthy, powerful interests, the way that they ask the questions, and the way they frame the answers are designed to get to the result that they want. That's number one. Number two, you have to remember our population has been heavily propagandized for multiple generations. These are very politicized issues. And for the last 40 years, they have been being lied to about what the police do, how police spend their time. They've been lied to about how unequal our society is. The costs of policing that you just asked me about have been completely hidden from people. So this is a, an area that, that there has been a tremendous propagandistic focus on. And so it's not surprising even that people's initial views on police are misinformed in many respects. But I think there's a deeper point. If you actually look at the polling and you ask a different sort of question, what people are saying isn't that they want police. What people are saying is that they want safe places to live, good jobs, resources for their kids after school. They want to be in a community that thrives and flourishes. They want health care. They want to be healthy. They don't want to be poisoned. They don't want their water poisoned with lead. They don't want to be kicked out of their home by their landlord. They don't want to have their home foreclosed on by a bank. They don't want their wages stolen. And when you actually look at what people say they want, they want the things that the police are designed to prevent. And so what we need also is an organizing and political education that counters a lot of the propaganda that wealthy interests ha who own the media have spread through the last 40 years. And I think this is a very complicated, profound issue. One of the ways in which media sort of commonly does this is they ask very particular, very narrow, very specific polling questions, when if they asked a deeper sort of question, they'd get really different answers about what people's priorities are and what alternatives to policing people would actually prefer billions of dollars to be spent on than more people with guns and weapons and, and handcuffs. Yeah, because it's, I mean, look, if you run a protection racket, and if it's 1920 Chicago, and I have you know, Al Capone defending my business from other mafias, and you ask me if I want to get rid of Al Capone, I'd say, well, no, because what, what the fuck else is there? Yeah. One of the things we've come across time and time again in this episode is that, like, we offer nothing else in return. Use an even hackier metaphor. We, someone's drowning, and you throw them a piece of barbed wire to grab onto. They're going to grab onto it. They don't have any other option. <laughs> Police are the only option, the only way of adjudicating domestic violence, the only way of adjudicating car theft, the only way of adjudicating any of these stuff in some limited way, right? There's, there's nothing else to appeal to. You call 311, they're going to send a cop no matter what. Now, some people are trying to provide alternatives. That's changing, right? Mental health workers, social workers, it's like something that gets mocked. It appears that the current consensus now in the Democratic Party under the Biden administration and under the auspices of electoral pragmatism, this is, you know, throw black people under the bus is always the cleverest thing you can come up with when you're trying to argue against any kind of left-wing reform. And so now you have this thing where Eric Adams was elected mayor in New York City that is now becoming the sort of counter-narrative. Chris Cuomo and CNN said... Will it, be elected mayor. Will be elected, sorry. It's a foregone conclusion, but yes, it has not happened <laughs> yet. Chris Cuomo, uh, James Carville was on CNN saying this. The New York Times wrote a puff piece on Eric Adams. The headline was... Why top Democrats are listening to Eric Adams right now? Some prominent Democrats think their party's nominee for mayor of New York offers a template for how to address issues of public safety. Now, this article four different times refers to, and I, knew, I know this is going to get under your skin. This is exactly what you're talking about. Four different times unironically refers to Eric Adams as the candidate of public safety. 
They referred to him as, quote, the most public safety-minded candidate in this year's mayoral primary, unquote. Now, this idea that being pro-police is, in, is interchangeable with public safety, I want you to comment on that. I want you to comment on the kind of, oh, look at Eric Adams. This is clearly showing that black and working-class voters and black working-class voters don't want to fund. They don't want any kind of establishment of focus. They want this nebulous reform that Eric Adams supposedly represents. But considering he was endorsed by the New York Post, we're going to go ahead and assume that that's all going to be bullshit. I want you to talk about the way Eric Adams has emerged as the kind of mascot for this liberal, carceral liberal reaction to George Floyd protest and black fair to say, because, again, because he's black, because he can sort of represent this pro-cop minority that everybody, that all these elites want to ventriloquize. I want to talk about that and talk about the broader narrative about public safety as being interchangeable with more police. I'm so glad you asked this question because I meant in your earlier question about how we counter this to say that one of the most important things we need to do is to take back this definition of what constitutes public safety. When the New York Times uses the term public safety, not only are they using a very narrow term that doesn't include things like, are people dying of preventable diseases? What does it mean to have a place to live or an apartment without mold? What does it mean to have my child get treatment for her asthma? There's so much that is encompassed in the concept of safety that has been left out by the policing and punishment bureaucracy. They want to narrow in. Um, and the only thing they want to consider safety-related are the quote-unquote crimes committed by the poor. They don't see anything else as connected to safety. We need to take that back because true, safe, thriving, flourishing lives are, are about so much more. But I think the other point is the New York Times, when it says public safety, whose safety is it talking about? Who does the New York Times actually concerned? You know, are they concerned about water poisoned with lead in poor communities? Are they concerned about the safety of people at Rikers Island and the safety of people in prisons all across New York State and the safety of children who have had their mom or dad ripped away from them? They're not concerned with that. They have a very particular concept of safety, and it's one that's heavily determined by who owns the New York Times, who advertises in the New York Times, and the sort of social circles that New York Times reporters and editors hang out in. And this is a fundamental challenge for those of us who want to take on these media circles, because a lot of these reporters just have not ever really experienced all of the various harms that our society inflicts on the poorest people in our society. And, and it's very hard to get them to see those things as safe and as connected to safety. So I personally think that these reporters are connecting policing to public safety because of all of the ways to further public safety universal health care, massive investments in education and after-school programs and theater and music and art and restorative justice and violence interruption programs run by community members. Of all of those ways, the only way to address safety that furthers the control and power of the ruling class is arming a bunch of people the ruling class controls with guns and cages and handcuffs. And so they choose that option and they connect that option with safety, not because it makes people safer in any kind of holistic sense of the word, but because it furthers other political goals that they have. Well, right, because public safety is actually just like, you know, well, who is constituting the quote-unquote public in that definition? And it is those moneyed interests, or it is like the friends of the reporters, or, or it is those politicians that are trying to absolutely destroy whatever momentum there is toward justice or expanded civil rights and, and certainly increase in, say, police funding, uh, because there's this like, Direct correlation, I think, that's made between safety equals money toward people with guns who are wearing uniforms and work. Like, there's this kind of, like, 
the idea, as you said, Alec, of expanding the definition of what public safety means, I think there's just, unfortunately, so far to go in our kind of, you know, collective consciousness in the public imagination because it has been so deliberately suppressed. And it kind of gets to the last thing that I want to ask you, which is what are you working on at Civil Rights Corps that really speaks to this? And of course, the broader work that you are all doing. Tell us a bit about Civil Rights Corps and how people can get involved. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. I mean, I, I think at a very high level, for the last few years, we've been working on things like the cash bail system, the incredible network of pretrial human caging all over this country. We cage human beings pretrial at a rate that no society in recorded history of the modern world has ever done. About 500,000 human beings in jail cells every single night in this country just because they can't pay cash bail or are otherwise detained prior to their trial. We've also been doing a lot of work on the criminalization of poverty and the way in which much of the criminal punishment bureaucracy, the, actually the vast bulk of the cases that are processed by police and prosecutors and judges are actually very low-level cases designed to generate revenue and designed to control people in their lives. So all over the country, we have lawsuits challenging, caging people just because they can't make payments, challenging the privatization of debt collection, challenging the taking away of people's driver's licenses just because they can't pay, challenging, as I mentioned, people being caged pretrial because they can't pay money bail. It, at a very high narrative level, to sort of loop it back to this discussion, I think we're, we're doing some really subversive stuff. So we're, we're saying to people, did you know that the way that these quote-unquote law enforcement, I use that term in quotes because they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time, but did you know that, that law enforcement, the way they decide who is in a cage and who is separated from their families, who has access to enough cash? And, and people are shocked by that. Ordinary people all over the country, they've never really thought about the bail system before. But once they learn about it, I think it subverts their sense that the system has any integrity. Because if it's making that important decision about whether a child should be home with her mom and able to hug her mom on the basis of how much cash the mom has, how can they trust anything else the system is telling them? How do they trust all the myths the system is giving them if the system is doing that? And the same is true with the criminalization of poverty. If, if people are being jailed for profit just because they can't pay fines, how can we trust all of the other decisions that these people, these bureaucrats, are telling us are done for our own safety? Because the vast bulk of what they're doing has no conceivable relation to safety at all. So I think our work in, in some respects, all over the country, in local communities where we have partners, everywhere we go, we try, you know, we're not as good at this as we would like, but we try to work with local organizers and activists and people who are directly impacted to try in some way to change these narratives, to challenge them, to offer different voices and to tell the stories of the cost of the system so that people can have a really different understanding from what they're told in the mainstream media every single day. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Previously, Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender in the District of Columbia and state of Alabama and co-founder of the organization Equal Justice Under Law, the author of usual cruelty and you can follow him on twitter at equality alec alec thank you so much again for joining us today on citations needed thank you so much it was so fun yeah and when we say the media shapes these perceptions of crime and, and hypes crime again regardless of what the data says before this recent alleged murder spike crime spike what have you in media criticism, you rarely get data that shows 
that there is manipulation going on in such a stark way as you do with perceptions of crime versus actual crime. According to Pew, in 20 of the 24 Gallup surveys conducted between the year 1993 and 2020, at least 60% of U.S. adults have said there is more crime nationally than there was the year before, despite the general downward trend in national violent and property crime rates during most of that period, according to... All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm just going to take a bit of a break here. Um, We have been sharing a podcast from uh, Citations Needed. This was episode 142, which came out on August 4th. Do have a lot of other info to get to on the show today. Going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more. Coming up a song called Wandering Star by Polisa.
Okay, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, low energy today. Did want to share some upcoming events that are happening. And if you happen to be listening right now live on Thursday, September 9th, um, tonight is the art auction. It's the Coalition on Homelessness 21st Art Auction. And there is a live auction happening tonight, September 8th. Excuse me, September 9th, uh, live at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. There's uh, silent auction bidding, which um, opens tonight at 5.30 p.m. There's also a silent auction bidding, and which closes and raffles announced on September 23rd at 12 noon. And I thought there's also other ways you can also, um, if you can't make it tonight, also support um, the art auction. Take a look right now while... We uh, <laughs> shared this info. Yeah, just, uh, there's a lot going on. And also, I recognize that in the podcast that we just shared, lots of information there as well. All right, so there's a link to the webinar where you can register to be part of the live auction tonight on Thursday, and I'm also going to see, because I do recognize some folks may be listening to this afterwards, I'm going to see about other ways, okay, that you can support art, I mean, how great is that, you get to support people, you buy art, um, it's a, it's a win-win, so, yeah, live auction happening tonight, and, Let's see. Bidding closes at September 23rd at noon. Okay, so it opens tonight, and it closes September 23rd at noon. So if you can't make it tonight, Thursday the 9th, you can still bid um, until September 23rd. I'm going to post a link to this info on our website, weeklyrev.org, where you can find the art auction info. And that's for no matter where you are in the world. Um, you can help support. You can also make a donation, and you can support the Coalition on Homelessness. So please do that, and uh, yeah. You, also, if you type in Coalition on Homelessness uh, San Francisco, you should be able to find that info there before I put it up here on our website. Ooh, I'm tired. I'm also just dehydrated. It's also just a lot. There's a lot. Excuse me. Mm. That was very, very professional. <laughs> um, also wanted to share another event that's happening. Um, this is happening from the EFF, which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah, that's what they are, right? Um, yeah, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. They do a lot of work in terms of rights in regards to tech and ethics in tech. So next Wednesday, September 15th from 9 p.m. to 5 p.m., there's going to be an online event called Fire and Fury, Throwing a Monkey Wrench at Big Tech. And um, this is by the Ethics in Technology Coalition. Ethics in Tech invites you to a full-day conference on the role Big Tech plays in surveillance, war, and peace. Ethics in Tech is a member of the EFF, a network of grassroots organizations across the country uh, committed to promoting digital rights. Please check out their event page to learn more. And then they say, uh, from the organizers, hear from activists and community leaders on what matters most as it relates to surveillance, war, and peace. Ethics and tech brings you a full day of speakers, including privacy and peace activists, journals, journalists, and other experts in the field, all topped with some end-of-day stand-up comedy. Please join in. Tickets are available 
at the button below on a sliding scale. And if you use the promo code EFA, you can save 30% on tickets. And you can feel free to share the code on any form of communication, including social media. All right. So if you click on the link, our next event. Ooh, there's a video. I'm I'm clearly all about playing videos and uh, hearing other people's voices today. So let's share this. Oh, it's just a link to the website. It's not an actual video. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm at. Free novel. Ethics in tech and lack thereof. Sleeping under the cell tower tells... Oh, cool. There's like a book about that too. You can get a free download of it called um, Ethics in Tech and lack thereof. Cool. So we'll also share a link to this on our website. And yeah, did want to share these events. What else is there? Oh, there's so much else that's going on too. There's an article I'm not going to get a chance to read, but I did want to share the headline of, and we'll post a link to it on our website. Oh, I've got so many tabs open. Um, How to Give Land Back. This is from Shareable, and this just came out September 7th, 2021 by Aaron Fernando. So we'll share that. I also, ahead of time, tend to... Um, oh, goodness. Oh, there's so many articles. Uh, if you were to see... This list here there's at least 10 articles that uh, haven't quite gotten to yet there's also i haven't mentioned it on the show too much about line three resistance and of course the powers that be are trying to build another fucking pipeline line three replacement pipeline uh, tar sands oil export um it received final permit approval in november 2020 and they were going to finish construction in minnesota and so far many people have been protesting this and unfortunately so far, there have been nearly 150 arrests of water protectors by the end of 2021. There's a lot of information on it um, at Unicorn Riot, um, including videos. And um, this is in St. Louis County, Minnesota. Um, yeah, let's see if we can get some audio from this as well. Never seems to be enough time to get to everything. Walking down today because I am a descendant of colonizers. I am of European descent. My family line goes back to the Mayflower. Um, I'm the 13th generation in my family to be colonizing this land. When I learned that over two years ago, it really made me have to reflect and have to think about where I fit in the scheme of the history of colonization that um, has never stopped. This is colonization. This is what it looks like. This is the extraction of natural resources. This is the genocide of indigenous people. And it's happening now in my lifetime, like it's been happening for hundreds of years. And we all have to reflect on what we're doing here and how much we're willing to sacrifice but actually how much we're willing to gain in order to do what's right.
You have uh, allies over here on this beautiful uh, trailer. Uh, 14 people locked down to it. And then over here, probably about 100 yards down the road, you have indigenous women, femmes, two-spirit, and men locked to a car to try to stop uh, Enbridge workers from accessing the site, leaving or entering. Now, locked down to this van is indigenous people. We are fucking rising up. We're here. Our direct support, indigenous people. Brown people did this. BIPOC people did this. Fuck yes. Indigenous led. This is indigenous run. This is the way to fucking do it. This is our fucking right as indigenous people because we are the earth defending itself. That's what people say. I love that. We are. We're the earth defending itself. This is thrivance. This is community thrivance. When the land is under attack, when the waters are under attack, we fucking stand up and we fight back. And there is joy in that. This is Fuck radical yeah. joy. I will not stand by and watch this shit happen. Just like everyone here will not stand by and watch this shit happen. We've seen it happen. We know what happens. We're in solidarity with indigenous people and struggles all over. Not just here in the so-called United States, not just in so-called Canada, but also in fucking Palestine. We're here to resist the continued genocide and enslavement of indigenous peoples. Uh, and we're here to extend in solidarity with indigenous peoples and any disenfranchised person who's being affected and destroyed by the spreading of global capitalism. We are here to be good relatives, not only to the Anishinaabe or the people of this territory, but to the land and to the water. We are here with you. We are sending our love to all the front lines out there. All of the indigenous front lines that are holding it down, they took actions yesterday, they took actions today, and will continue to take actions from here on forward because indigenous resistance does not die. We do not die. They are temporary. We are forever. Fuck line three. Fuck Enbridge. Fuck all corporate profit. Fuck capitalism. Fuck colonialism. Fuck Biden. Fuck all that settler colonial bullshit. In this moment, we're recognizing the power that we have our individual power, our collective power, and we're taking it back. We're no longer allowing this systems to tell us that, uh, that they're gonna allow the bureaucracy to push this pipeline through the community. That they're gonna allow uh, the trafficking of indigenous women. Um, and that they're gonna continue to put this ongoing you know, colonization um, through our homelands. This is indigenous land. This is indigenous land. Indigenous land. Let her go! We will not stop fighting line three. They can continue to push this down people's throats here in northern Minnesota, but we're not gonna tolerate this. It's done. We're drawing the line here. And we're gonna continue fighting continuously fighting even when it is all continuously buried line three will be shut down no questions asked I'm currently playing some videos from Unicorn Riot. You can find more info at unicornriot.ninja. And of course, this all ties in because the folks who are arresting the water protectors are cops. 
I'm going to play one more video, and then I'll be wrapping up the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. For more info, go to weeklyrev.org. You can find ways to support the show, help spread the word, donate, uh, etc. And check out previous episodes as well. Jill just uh, showed up this morning. They're currently just right on the other side of this fence here, uh, putting the drill together, putting the drill pad together. Uh, this is the longest site of the entire uh, route. Uh, for them to go. I think it's about a quarter mile. They have to go underground. So we're thinking it might take them a few weeks, but it's taking them eight days for 50 day project. So You know, if they say it's a replacement, but it's not a replacement, they're just um, putting a bigger pipe in there and the old ones will rust, decay and eventually break and spill. And there's never not been a company not to spill. So there's 22 crossings and that's a lot of chances for it to mess up. They already busted through one aquifer poisoning uh, and ruining it. So there's a lot of chances there for that to happen again. Water is life. That's why we're here, that's why we're standing here. Not only for ourselves, but for future generations and even the people who don't understand, but we're here for them too. So there's plenty of more videos here. Like there's a lot more. Um, so please do support um, all the folks, the water protectors and also Unicorn Riot who has shared all this info. Um, and we have a link to the, to the page over at ours, weeklyref.org, and that'll be up later today. Um, okay, gonna play some music and then we'll be, we'll be out. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully this show was informative. And uh, provided some ways that folks can show up and try to make the world a little bit more equitable. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dog. <laughs> Good evening. It's 6 o'clock. We are live from San Francisco, California. My name is Junior Jenkins, and I'm bringing you the Gates of Delirium, the wild tour through the eclectic and esoteric outer fringes of progressive rock and roll. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Alfred's World of Trousers. Alfred has the best trousers at the best prices. We are forget forever grateful to Alfred for his help supporting the Gates of Delirium. I'm going to get right into the music tonight. We are going to start with a band that came out of uh, Italy in 1974, came out of the New Trolls, put out one album, and then went back and finished out three more albums with the new trolls. The band is named Ibis. The track is The Valley of Mists from the album Sun Supreme, 1974. Yeah. 
Imagine having the elite performance of good. That was the Italian band Ibis. Next, I'm going to bring you a band from Britain. The name of the band is Melting Euphoria. This is a album they put out in 1997, Inside the Gardens of the Mind. And this track is going to be Daisy Chain of Thoughts.